One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Radio Estros, episode 62, The Winds of Winter Primer, part 8, Slaver's Bay. and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me today, as ever, is Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi there, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. And today we continue to prepare you for The Winds of Winter with another instalment in our Primer series. This time, we're heading east as we focus on Slaver's Bay. With numerous POVs in this region and a complex array of plot threads, it was difficult to figure out how best to present this. So we decided to split this content into three episodes. First of all, today we'll be focusing on Slaver's Bay and what's happening outside of Marine, namely in the point of view of Victorian Greyjoy and Tyrion Lannister. Next time, we'll be analyzing what's happening inside Marine itself, and then we'll conclude the Primer series with an episode about Daenerys, currently lost in the Dothraki Sea. Yes, so today we'll consider what's going on around Slaver's Bay. We'll begin by recapping Victarion's story as he heads eastwards to the bay during A Dance with Dragons, and makes an unlikely ally in the form of the mysterious Red Priest, Makoro. Then we'll take a close look at the Victarion Winds of Winter preview material, so spoiler alert for the Winds of Winter samples. And following our look at Victarion, we'll next focus on Tyrion Lannister with a walk through two of his concluding chapters in A Dance with Dragons before we delve into the two spoiler chapters as the so-called Battle of Fire begins. How do Victarion and Tyrion's stories intersect? Stay tuned to find out. And finally, we have a detailed section called Putting It All Together, where we will prime you on the current events and situation outside of Marine's walls. Who is on whose side? Which sellsword companies are where? And what is about to happen with that dragon horn? Let us remind you of all those details and get you up to scratch. There are so many exciting talking points we'll be discussing today, conflict, intrigue, and plenty of character analysis to get you thinking about the future of this story we all love so much. But before we begin, we want to give a shout out to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Daniel, 
Joe I, the three-eyed bro, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Pepper Nix, Maltude, John Wargarian, B-Word, the Queen Beyond the Wall, and Mr. J, the Red Shirt and Black, and Chris B, the Song of Ice. So thanks so much to all of our patrons, and if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider being a patron too, and obtain perks such as shout-outs, early access, and now an invite to our Discord forum. Look for Radio Westeros at patreon.com. And now, let's get started with the Winds of Winter Primer, Part 8, Slaver's Bay. I have seen you in the night fires, Victarion Greyjoy. You come striding through the flames, stern and fierce, your great axe dripping blood, blind to the tentacles that grasp you at wrist and neck and ankle, the black strings that make you dance. After capturing the Shield Isles in a feast for crows, and, rather conveniently, offering their lordships to men known to support his brother Victarion, Euron Greyjoy requested the company of his younger brother to discuss his plans. Euron wanted to talk about dragons, and a dragon egg he once owned, and his planned journey to Slaver's Bay. After offering his brother a cup of a mysterious blue liquor that the reader knows to be Shade of the Evening which Victarion declines to drink after a small taste, Euron explains how he came to encounter the substance after capturing a Gallius out of Carth. He goes on to confess to torturing four captive Carthian warlocks after they told him a, quote, curious tale. When one threatened him, Euron being Euron, killed him and then forced his fellows to eat his flesh. Though they resisted at first, when they got hungry enough, they did indeed resort to cannibalism. The entire story, which also hints at Euron's murder of their brother Balon, though Victarion doesn't realize it, doesn't seem to bother Euron in the slightest. Men are meat, he concludes. Victarion immediately thinks of Lord Balor Blacktide's words that Euron is the maddest of them all, and when the crow's eye requests that he sail to Slaver's Bay to bring back Daenerys Targaryen to be his wife, Victarion is at first inclined to refuse. Asking this of Victarion is a change of policy for Euron, who had intended to take the whole Ironborn fleet himself to Marine to meet his bride in person. With Euron's men now demanding attacks on the Arbor and Old Town, he wants to delegate the journey to his brother with the reward of the Seastone Chair offered to Victorion since it's Euron's intention to take the Iron Throne, and so an old feud comes to the front of Victorion's mind. Yeah, Victorion remains extremely bitter that Euron seduced his unnamed third wife, after which Victorion beat her to death to preserve his honour, as he puts it. Ironically, in light of what we learn about Euron himself, Victarion actually refrained from doing the same to Euron due to the taboo of kinslaying. This snippet from Victarion's backstory at once highlights how brutal he can be and where his limits lie. Whereas Euron shows no respect to such taboos and boundaries, the godly and superstitious Victarion craves vengeance over his brother 
but must look for ways to achieve it other than killing him directly. And so, as Euron taunts Victarion by questioning his bravery, Victarion quickly formulates a plan to sail to Daenerys and marry her himself. I'll go to Slaver's Bay, aye, I'll find this dragon woman and I'll bring her back, he says. And then he thinks, but not for you. You stole my wife and despoiled her, so I'll have yours. The fairest woman in the world for me. And with that plan in mind, Victarion's feast arc concluded as he agrees to sail east while Euron remains off the coast of Westeros, reaving and raiding and plotting his next moves. It's difficult to imagine that Euron has not considered his brother coming up with some scheme to snatch Daenerys for himself, and as the book closes with Victarion trying to outsmart Euron, we're reminded of George's words that Victarion is, quote, dumb as a stump. Victarion has two chapters in A Dance with Dragons, The Iron Suitor and Victarion One. In the former, we catch up with our Iron Captain, who has been doing a lot of sailing off-page, all the way east to the Isle of Cedars, an island outside of Slaver's Bay. Victarion's plan to split his fleet into three parts in order to be less conspicuous in Essos has backfired, with storms and strong winds scattering the Iron Fleet here, there and everywhere, and many vessels now being unaccounted for. That's right, the Iron Fleet started the journey with 99 ships, which Victarion divided into three at the Stepstones. The swiftest were given to Red Ralph Stonehouse to follow the shore of Sothorios. Ralph is still missing and only nine of his ships have returned. The heavy slow ships loaded with captives were sent with Ralph the Limper to Lys, where the slaves would be sold and the ships filled with provisions. Only 14 of those survive. And finally, Victarion's group followed the shore of the disputed lands to Volantis before heading out to their present location. 22 of that group survive. This gives a total of 44 ships of the original 99, which is quite disastrous for Victarion. He tries to address the balance by capturing other ships like a true pirate, and more on that later. But for the time being, Victarion is stuck at the planned rendezvous point off the Isle of Cedars, which has long been abandoned by its previous inhabitants, evidenced by the fact that the native animals have no fear of man. The population of wild boar in the brush make for good hunting while Victarion awaits more of his fleet, and the local monkeys provide moments of comedy as they fling feces and generally annoy the humorless and relentlessly dour Victarion. He does not need any more aggravation, as besides the decimation of his fleet, the ominous wound to his hand inflicted by Sir Talbot Serry in their duel back at the Shields is festering. In an apparent callback to the fate of his brother Euragon some 17 years previously, Maester Kerwin fails to treat the wound effectively, and time seems to be running out for Victarion with the aggressive infection spreading up his arm and giving off quite a putrid stench. However, Victarion soon benefits from good fortune, or at least a twist of fate, as Grief, the 45th ship of the original Iron Fleet to convene at the Isle of Cedars, arrives with a rather curious passenger. 
the distinctive Red Priest Makoro had been found drifting in the sea, clinging to some splintered wreckage from the trading cog Selasori Koran, which, as we saw in a Tyrian chapter earlier, had been damaged in a fierce storm. Makoro spent ten days afloat and alone in the water, more than long enough to kill your average mortal man. However, we know from Tyrion's point of view that Makoro is a mysterious and prophetic character who seemed to have foreknowledge that Selasori Koran would not reach its destination. Although the Ironborn are suspicious of Makoro and his practices and call to cut his throat, kill him before he calls his demons down on us, Victarion keeps more of an open mind and bellows with some authority, no. Stand back, all of you, reasoning that the drowned god has spared the man for a purpose. Makoro tells Victarion that in his flames he has seen Victarion's demise, which can only be averted if he allows Makoro to assist him. In spite of his men's wishes, and it's noted that even the monkeys seem terrified of Makoro, Victarion likes the idea of having a sorcerer aboard. His brother Euron had his pet wizards, he thinks. One of several times, Victarion reveals his sibling rivalry and jealousy towards his brother. If Euron has magicians, why can't I? It's almost like he looks up to Euron in a roundabout way, and in spite of hating him, perhaps aspires to be like him. Victarion, though, is far too proud to admit this to himself. Although these two characters and their circumstances are extreme, these are typical sibling dynamics that some readers might relate to. Unperturbed by the whispers of his men or the reaction of the frightened monkeys, Victarion displays his power as a leader and makes a crucial decision. He doesn't hesitate in accepting Makoro's offer of guidance and healing for his fetid hand, despite the warning that extreme pain would be involved. I am Ironborn Priest. I laugh at pain. You'll have what you require. But if you fail and my hand is not healed, I will cut your throat myself and give you to the sea. Victarion retires to his quarters, where Makoro begins to work his magic, albeit off-page. The procedure takes all day, but when Victarion re-emerges, he is healthy once more. Although the magic has left its mark. Come sunset, as the sea turned black as ink and the swollen sun tinted the sky a deep and bloody red, Victarion came back on deck. He was naked from the waist up, his left arm blood to the elbow. As his crew gathered, whispering and trading glances, he raised a charred and blackened hand. Wisps of dark smoke rose from his fingers as he pointed at the maester. The Red Priest's magic has paid off. He promised to fix Victarion and did exactly that. Victarion now recognises that Mokoro knows things. Mokoro was as good as his word, seems to have prophetic insight and performed a minor miracle that saved his life. The newfound trust seems well-earned and this is the moment Victarion becomes a dualist, maintaining his devotion to the drowned god while opening his mind to the proven power of R'hllor. 
while Victarion might not be the sharpest tool in the shed, his methods do maintain a certain undeniable logic. In this case, two gods are better than one. In an echo of Balon's long-ago killing of the maester who failed to heal their brother Uragon's hand, Maester Kerwin pays the price for Makoro's successful surgery as the chapter concludes with Victarion ordering his men to slit the maester's throat, a procedure which serves the dual purpose of punishing the unsatisfactory healer while providing a sacrifice to ensure favorable winds as Makoro had foreseen in his flames. This highlights Makoro appealing to Victarion's superstitious black-and-white nature, and the sacrificial magic also puts us in mind of Melisandre of Ashai, another practitioner of the Red God's magic who has been known to use blood sacrifice to ensure favorable winds. Makoro has also seen Daenerys' marriage to Hisdar in the flames, although this does not perturb Victarion in the slightest, who thinks... She would not be the first woman Victarion Greyjoy had made a widow. He evidently has every confidence in his own abilities and in his appeal to a woman he knows almost nothing about. Whether this confidence is well-placed remains to be seen, but we get the impression that with Makoro by his side, Victarion feels unstoppable. Overall, in The Iron Suitor, there is a lot of focus on the wonderfully distinctive Makoro, which reminds us that he's a character we should not forget about. It doesn't take Victarion long to realise that Makoro is so adept at flame-reading that he is using visions of the future to chart his own course. When Makoro was drifting on the sea for ten days, he was simply waiting for grief to discover him and take him to Victarion. We as readers are accustomed to the practices of Melisandre, where she sees accurate visions yet interprets them with a high degree of error, in spite of being one of the biggest talents of her order. Mokoro is a cut above in his prophetic abilities. He has his immediate future mapped out, and as such is simply following fate in a deterministic manner, allowing the future to dictate his present. However, we know from his time with Tyrion that Makoro has been sent forth by Benero, High Priest of the Red Temple of Volantis, in search of Daenerys Targaryen, whom Benero believes to be an incarnation of the returning savior Azor Ahai. As such, aiding Victarion is likely a means to an end for Makoro. This means, in the short term, that Victarion has a great mystical ally to guide him towards Daenerys in the Red Sorcerer who perhaps shouldn't be trusted in the long term. Victarion could well be a disposable part of Makoro's wider plan, yet whether Victarion realizes this or harbors any amount of suspicion remains to be seen. It certainly cannot be denied that when Makoro commented to Victarion about seeing tentacles and black strings making him dance in his fires, Victarion seems to have utterly missed the likely reference to his brother Euron taking the comment quite literally and denying any impulse to dance. It seems very likely that Makoro knows things he's not sharing, and those things are unlikely to be favorable to Victarion. 
So as we sail forth into the second and final Victarion chapter of A Dance with Dragons, Victarion's blind faith in himself is now supported by Makoro's magical faith. The two characters make quite a pair, two fearless and independent spirits whose similarities end there. But at the moment, both men have a common goal in wanting to reach and aid Daenerys, and so they help and complement each other. We immediately learn Victarion is scavenging for extra vessels to swell the numbers of his depleted fleet by boarding and commandeering any boats or ships to come across the path of the Iron Fleet. Makoro is helping things along by accurately predicting the coordinates of these unfortunate vessels, which we sense will play a role in aiding the cause of Daenerys and Meereen. Makoro uses his abilities to search for vulnerable vessels, Victarion uses his might and leadership to seize them. This is teamwork at its finest. Yeah, the pair do make an unlikely duo, and not only is Makoro an extremely proactive character, capable of literally changing the course of Victarion's journey, he's also the Swiss army knife of sidekicks. Aside from envisioning where Victarion's next victims are going to be, he translates the latest news from the guttural Giscari tongue of captives and is able to debunk rumors that Daenerys is dead in a ditch somewhere after she flies off on her dragon. If Victarion really is as unintelligent as George has conveyed, Makoro offsets some of that limitation with his magical intuition, allowing Victarion to lead with raw power. Victarion even donates some of his own clothes in order to dress the Red Priest in ironborn garb, hoping it would assuage any fear of the outsider that his men maintained. The crow's eye keeps wizards, why shouldn't I, he thinks for a second time. My brother wants something, so I want it too, is the mindset, which, when you think about it, could be the motto of this entire eastward journey. In spite of the fact that Victarion is convinced, his crew are still afraid or suspicious of Makoro, with one oarsman claiming, The Black Priest is calling demons down on us. After seeing the Black Flame, as Victarion's crew had taken to calling him, at his nightfire. This new moniker for Makoro should make readers take note, since earlier in A Dance with Dragons, the Shadowbinder Quaith had issued one of her cryptic statements to Daenerys, urging her not to trust Kraken and Dark Flame, among others. Here, many pages and months later, we see that pairing on page heading for Daenerys. Victarion had that oarsman whipped as a deterrent to both his dissenting crew and to Makoro himself, should his predictions become inaccurate. In spite of the warning, Victarion is becoming heavily dependent on Makoro, who's now accurately predicting the weather, which must be every medieval sailor's delight. With the smoking hand and all else that Makoro has done for him, it's no wonder Victarion is beginning to honor the Red God, naming one captured vessel Red God's Wrath. Victarion continues to add whatever vessels the Iron Fleet comes upon to his own numbers, and when he commandeers a pair of galleys, it's notable that he slaughters the entire crew save for the slave oarsman whom he frees, 
Bearing in mind he's approaching Marine with the hope of impressing Daenerys, the reader is aware of the irony of this, given some of his ships had recently sold a cargo of Westerosi women and children in Lys, but Victarion remains oblivious. Aside from his new best bud, Makoro, we're reminded that Victarion remains intimately connected to the dusky woman. Like Jamie with the tongueless Illin Payne, this mute character serves as a supposedly safe outlet for Victarion. He talks to her, confides in her, and shares secrets with her. In spite of his recognition that the dusky woman was a gift from Euron and that, quote, all of Euron's gifts are poisoned, Victarion has grown strangely fond of her and never quite gets around to throwing her overboard. With the thought that Makoro might be using Victarion, that the dusky woman might one day act out secret orders on behalf of Euron, and that Victarion is currently alienating some of his crew, it's worth keeping in mind that the Iron Suitor is a long way from home and not necessarily surrounded by friends. Yeah, but Victarion doesn't do much in the way of contemplation. As he tells the Dusky Woman, and as we mentioned earlier, he's now a confirmed dualist, saying, Two gods are with me now. No foe can stand before two gods. It's easy to see why Victarion has grown so bold. As he approaches the island of Yaros, exceedingly close to his destination, yet another Makoro prediction comes true, that he would find three of his missing cogs there, and Victarion finally has a decision to make for himself. The way he considers his options is telling. Here's the quote. Now he had to make a choice. Should he risk the straits or take the Iron Fleet around the island? The memory of Fair Isle still rankled in the Iron Captain's memory. Stannis Baratheon had descended on the Iron Fleet from both north and south. Whilst they were trapped in the channel between the island and the mainland, dealing Victarion his most crushing defeat but sailing around Yeros would cost him precious days. With Yonkai so near, shipping in the straits was like to be heavy, but he did not expect to encounter Yunkish warships until they were closer to Marine. What would the crow's eye do? He brooded on that for a time, then signalled to his captains, We sail the straits. So, the situation at Yaros, just off Slaver's Bay, brings back memories of Victarion's most humiliating failure when he was caught by Stannis Baratheon at Fair Isle during Balon's Rebellion. Here at Yaros, he can't decide which way to go around the island, doesn't want to make a similar mistake, and he doesn't ask Makoro for guidance. Instead, at this most critical of moments, he thinks, what would the crow's eye do? Again, this is proof of the grudging respect Victarion holds for Euron, that in some way, he just wants to be like his big brother. After everything Euron has done to hurt Victarion, Vic still looks up to him in a strange way. We witness this dynamic when Victarion wanted his own wizard, but here he's putting himself in his brother's shoes in order to make an important naval decision to highlight the point. When Victarion arrives at the decision to sail the straits, we can't be sure whether he does that because it's what Euron would do, or because it's the opposite of what Euron would do. 
We favour the former, but would argue that ultimately it doesn't matter. What's pertinent is that we learn how important Euron is to Victarion's decision-making process. Even when he's thousands of leagues away, the crow's eye is a central presence in Victarion's thoughts. You can be sure that the self-assured Euron never thinks the same way about Victarion, so it tells us a lot about both brothers and their dynamics further evidence of Victarion's little brother syndrome. As the chapter goes on, Victarion continues to seize more vessels until a captured Yunkish captain informs him that Daenerys has flown away to the Dothraki Sea. When Victarion replies that he will sail the Iron Fleet across the Dothraki Sea and find the queen wherever she may be, it feels as if George R. R. Martin, the audience, and the captain are all laughing at Victarion together. However, Victarion reminds us that he is indeed a humorless soul by choking the life from the Yunkishman with his smoking fist for the crime of laughing at him. He then swears to Makoro that the Red God will have its due and that his word is iron, reminding us that, misguided or not, Victarion does maintain a sense of fairness and honor in his own unique way. And Makoro's response that the Lord of Light has shown me your worth, Lord Captain. Every night in my fires I glimpse the glory that awaits you. Could be either read as encouraging, as Victarion chooses to take it, or rather ominous if you believe he is being used by Makoro. What exactly is the glory that awaits Victarion Greyjoy? Is it getting the girl and triumphing over his brother, as Victarion assumes, or is it something darker, perhaps even sacrificial, if we consider the source of the statement? The Iron Suitor then lends us a glimpse of his plan to marry Daenerys and bring back the old way of the Ironborn, which the audience knows is highly contradictory given Daenerys' ideals of more progressive social policies. In his dreams, his voyage to Daenerys is linked to the long-ago efforts of his ancestor Dagon Greyjoy to return the Iron Islands to the old way. Almost a hundred years had passed since Dagon Greyjoy sat the Seastone chair, but the Ironborn still told tales of his raids and battles. In Dagon's day, a weak king sat the Iron Throne, his roomy eyes fixed across the narrow sea where bastards and exiles plotted rebellion. So, forth from Pike, Lord Dagon sailed to make the sunset sea his own. He bearded the lion in his den and tied the direwolf's tail in knots. But even Dagon could not defeat the dragons. But I shall make the Dragon Queen mine own. She will share my bed and bear me many mighty sons. Victarion's confusion of goals and ideals continues with the last ship to be captured by the Iron Fleet, a slave galley destined for the pleasure houses of Lys. Victarion slays the slavers and renames the galley Slaver's Scream to impress Daenerys, yet he dubs the perfumed boys unnatural and drowns them all. Finally, he collects the, quote, seven choicest girls and burns them alive on a fishing catch to honor both the drowned god and Makoro's relore. 
The screaming of the girls sounds like a song to Victarion, who thinks, On wings of song I fly to you, Daenerys, as the sacrifice seems to have its expected effect on the winds. Victarion's delusions seem to know no bounds as he romanticizes a barbaric act against innocent girls that would no doubt have horrified Daenerys, and his moral compass seems certainly no better than that of the slavers. The chapter concludes with Victarion contemplating the hellhorn we heard at the king's moot. It says, That night, for the first time, he brought forth the dragon horn that the crow's eye had found amongst the smoking wastes of Great Valyria. A twisted thing it was, six feet from end to end, gleaming black and banded with red gold and dark Valyrian steel. Euron's Hellhorn. Victarion ran his hand along it. The horn was as warm and smooth as the dusky woman's thighs, and so shiny that he could see a twisted likeness of his own features in its depths. Strange sorcerer's writings had been cut into the bands that girded it. Valyrian glyphs, Makoro called them. As we've said, one purpose Makoro serves is to indulge Victarion in the mystic and the prophetic. The Red Priest knows things, as Victarion previously thought, and so who better to explain the mysterious horn than him? I am Dragonbinder, says Makoro, translating the glyphs. No mortal man shall sound me and live. Again, Victarion's mind goes immediately to his brother, as he thinks, Euron's gifts are always poisoned. Makoro explains that Victarion should not, therefore, blow the dragon horn himself, or else end up like Euron's dead man on Old Wick, with burnt insides. But the important aspect is not who blows the horn, but who claims it. You must claim the horn, says Makoro, with blood. What this all means is left ambiguous, as the chapter ends on that note. And that is in fact the last we hear from Victarion's POV in A Dance with Dragons. And before we arrive at the Winds of Winter sample chapter, let's consider the main talking points. First of all, we have Victarion and Euron both after Daenerys's hand in marriage. Euron seems unconcerned at the thought of Victarion sailing off to rescue her, so it seems likely he has a plan of some kind given he's so far proved to be more intelligent than his younger brother. Yeah, and Victarion notes two gifts that are potentially poisoned. First of all, there's the dusky woman. Some have speculated that she might be working a glass candle and communicating somehow back to Euron. While she might retain loyalty to Euron, we find some of these supernatural theories to be unlikely and pretty impractical. But she could, however, have orders to spy on Victarion and perhaps put poison in his porridge on the return voyage with Daenerys and Toe. This would be an example of a more straightforward potential plan that utilizes the dusky woman without a convoluted magical explanation. It would be the Hail Mary plot that wouldn't cost Euron anything if it went awry, but it would have a high reward for him if it came to pass. The next poison gift is the dragon horn. We can't be sure exactly how the horn works, and it's an item steeped in mystery. But notice that Makoro points out that it has to be bound to someone. Did Euron bind the horn to himself in order to trick Victarion? 
Will Makoro rebind it to Victorion? And what will the results be? These are fascinating questions for the Winds of Winter that none of us can yet answer. But consider this statement from Makoro that we open the segment with. I have seen you in the night fires, Victarion Greyjoy. You come striding through the flames, stern and fierce, your great axe dripping with blood, blind to the tentacles that grasp you at risk and neck and ankle, the black strings that make you dance. So it seems clear that Euron is the puppeteer in this, one of several potentially ominous signs, and so Victarion needs to be on high alert if he's to avoid being tricked. Mokoro has thus far been a game-changer for him, but as we've said, he's a man with his own motivations, and Victarion would therefore be remiss in trusting him wholeheartedly. As we said earlier, it seems likely that Makoro knows things that he's not sharing with Victarion, and the fact that Victarion isn't more suspicious of this man speaks to the blind spots he has at perceiving the big picture. The big question in regards to Makoro is to what extent is he seeking to use Victarion for his own ends? The pair might work well in tandem currently, but what happens when Makoro arrives at Marine and wants different things from Victarion? What exactly Makoro is planning with the dragon horn remains to be seen, but binding the horn to the iron suitor could either bring great benefits or great trouble to Victarion. We don't see much of a middle ground here, and the only people who know what fate awaits Victarion are the prophetic Makoro and George R. R. Martin himself. Speaking of which, our analysis of Victarion does not stop with the Dance with Dragons. In 2012, George read aloud Victarion One from The Winds of Winter at a fan convention. The first portion of the chapter was accurately transcribed, but after that we only have a brief fan summary. George has stated that the chapter occurs just five minutes after the end of A Dance with Dragons and begins with Victarion packing ironborn soldiers into the holding area of Noble Lady. Yeah, this great cog was captured off the coast of Dorne on their journey east. Victarion's plan is to send forth his collection of captured vessels into Slaver's Bay to trick the blockade ships sitting at anchor there. Traders and fishers, that's all you are. Any man can see that. Let them get close as they like, but keep your men hidden below decks until you are ready. Then close and board them. Free the slaves and feed the slavers to the sea, but take the ships. We'll have need of every hull to carry us back home. At this point, noble lady, captained by Wolf Wanier, is lashed to Iron Victory until Victarion orders the vessels to separate, at which point the fleet raises their sails. He is decidedly jealous of the men he's packed onto the cog, as they will soon see battle, which stirs a bloodlust in Victarion. He contemplates past fights and lovers, and we see that Victarion is a true warrior who genuinely relishes physical conflict and war. Again he thinks of Euron and all his brother has taken from him, as he seems to in every chapter, before requesting the company of three thralls. The point is made that he does not know the men's names in spite of their service to him. 
With Makoro's advice in Victarion's final A Dance with Dragons chapter ringing in our ears that he must claim the Hellhorn with blood, the Iron Suitor introduces the three thralls to the horn. Victarion explains that Euron's mute blew the horn three times and it killed him, but these men are only expected to blow the horn once each, so they might survive. He promises them freedom, land, and kudos if they do his bidding. He'll even call them by their names. Oh, what a great privilege. And the excerpt ends with Victarion asking Makoro what he's seen in his flames. It says, Makoro's dark eyes seem to shine. I see dragons. From there, we only have a brief bullet point summary of what happens next in the chapter. The dusky woman bleeds Victarion's hand and he smears the blood onto the horn. He has an intimate moment with her before she assists him with his armour. Finally, Victarion gives a rousing speech to his men before the Iron Fleet sets sail towards Meereen. The Ironborn setup for the Battle of Fire is complete, with Victarion displaying his confidence and fearlessness, and by now our adrenaline is pumping. Although Victarion's point of view is concluded for the moment, due to the complex interweaving of the marine convergence, we do know what happens next for the Ironborn. Coming up next, we'll be recapping Tyrion's marine arc, at the end of which we'll see that convergence. For now, suffice it to say that Slaver's Bay is poised for mayhem, and none of us can wait to find out what happens next. Victarion's presence ensures that it will be bloody, and only time can really tell what will become of him. Yeah, we've covered the talking points regarding Victarion, Euron, and Makoro, but Victarion's immediate future concerns this battle in Slaver's Bay as he attempts to force his way into Marine. What will happen when Dragonbinder is blown, and what will Victarion do if his entrance into Marine is successful, but Daenerys is still absent? There's war and chaos at every turn, and an intriguing convergence of characters. And while some readers predict a swift end for Victarion, fans of the Iron Suitor are encouraged by the fact that George has mentioned as recently as August 2020 that he's been writing about him. And so, stay tuned. After our Tyrion recap, we'll spend some time talking through some of the things that might happen with Victarion Greyjoy in The Winds of Winter. He heard the whip before he felt it, a whistle in the air, thin and sharp. Tyrion grunted under the blow, but this time he managed to stay on his feet. His thoughts flashed back to the beginnings of his journey when his most pressing problem had been deciding which wine to drink with his mid-morning snails. See what comes of chasing dragons? Tyrion Lannister's A Dance with Dragons arc sees him travelling across Essos towards Daenerys, first as a free man being directed by Illyrio Mopatis, and in the company of Griff, Young Griff, and the rest aboard the Shy Maid. 
As they approach Volantis, however, he crosses paths with Jorah Mormont in a brothel in Soloris and finds himself Mormont's prisoner. Jorah, it seems, plans to deliver Tyrion to Daenerys in order to curry the favour he craves following his own dishonourable dismissal from Marine. And after boarding Selasori Coran in Volantis, and now with Penny in tow, the ship runs afoul of poor winds and then a storm which leaves him stranded on the high sea. It's notable that the mysterious Red Priest Makoro, who started the journey with them, is lost overboard during the storm, which marks the opening of his curious association with Victarion Greyjoy. And with the worst luck, Selasori Koran is eventually boarded by slavers who take Tyrion, Penny, and Jorah captive. With Jorah's backstory being that he fled the Seven Kingdoms to avoid Ned Stark's punishment for the crime of selling poachers into slavery, and the fact that he was so keenly invested in denying Tyrion his freedom, the layers of irony are palpable. And so Tyrion Ten, of a dance with dragons, addresses the sale of Tyrion, Jorah and Penny into slavery outside the walls of Meereen. The fact that nobody appears to be safe from this wicked trade around Slaver's Bay speaks to the quality and realism of George's worldbuilding. This turn of events further disempowers Tyrion, who was already on a downward spiral as an exile who had recently murdered his own father, one of the most powerful men in Westeros, and who subsequently had a price placed on his rather distinctive head by his own sister, the Queen Regent, followed by his uncertain time as Jorah Mormont's captive. Now forced into slavery, Tyrion, once again calling himself Yolo, will have to use every drop of his cunning if he is to survive and overcome these most testing circumstances, and we as readers get to experience the slave trade from the point of view of a once privileged man fallen into slavery. And so, Lot 97, where Tyrion and Penny are bundled together with the dog Crunch and Pretty Pig as jousting dwarf entertainers, are offered to the highest bidder. In spite of the bidding by an aged Yunkish noblewoman, a girl in armor whom we suppose to be the Yunkish commander known as the Girl General, and a certain sellsword, later revealed to be Brown Ben Plum, who was looking to purchase Tyrion as a gift for Daenerys, and not for Cersei as Tyrion imagines, the lot is finally sold to Yezenzo Kagaz, an obscenely rich slaver and wise master of Yunkai, who, given Tyrion's estimation that he's the size of four Illyrios, might be the widest man in this story. Jorah Mormont is also offered at auction, his face now unrecognizable after he had tried in vain to physically resist the slavers and had his cheek branded with a demon's mask, the mark of an unruly slave. Although Tyrion wonders why he's helping Jorah, he uses his quick thinking to encourage Yazan to purchase the man, who has been further broken by the news that Daenerys wed Hisdar Zolorak, convincing his new master that the Harry Mormont plays the part of the bear in their performance of The Bear and the Maiden Fair. 
at the Junkish encampment, with Marine besieged and the walls of the city in sight, the fact is not lost on Tyrion that he and Mormont were so close yet so far away from their goal of reaching Daenerys, and as such he is already plotting how to escape to the city and reclaim his freedom. This ambition is heightened with the realisation that the spread of the bloody flux poses as much threat as war itself. Tyrion thinks that he might even have to leave Penny behind, and there's the increasing feeling that the time he spent in close proximity with her has instilled in him some cognitive dissonance, and that how he treats her in the upcoming chapters will be a test of his empathy character and conscience. After Tyrion is introduced by Yezan's overseer, called Nurse, to the other members of the grotesquerie, he and Petty are called upon to perform for the Yunkish supreme commander, Yurkaz Zoyunzak. There Tyrion meets the sellsword who had bid for him at the market, Brown Ben Plum of the Second Sons. The pair engage in a game of Sivas, and we sense that playing this game will be a great opportunity for Tyrion to exercise his wits, intelligence, and ability to manipulate people. True to form, he's soon making inroads with Plum, who he wonders if he could turn as he once turned another sellsword, namely Bronn, for his own benefit. Following his defeat of Plum at Sivas, the chapter ends with the news that the performance with Penny was so well received that they'll now be expected to perform in Dasnak's pit in front of Queen Daenerys and an audience of thousands. And with the events of Dasnak's pit being both inside Marine and not the subject of a Tyrion POV, we'll set our focus instead on the subsequent Tyrion chapter. In Tyrion 11, Yezan has contracted the bloody flux and is dying in pain, and it falls to Tyrion and Penny to wipe his enormous behind. A healer identifies the need to provide the man with fresh water, and Tyrion resolves to use the surrounding chaos to his advantage. With Yezan at the brink of death, Tyrion and Penny are suddenly more vulnerable than ever. Aside from the disease, the impending demise of Yezan could mean he and Penny end up back at auction, so Tyrion must tread carefully. It says, Their collars gave them leave to go anywhere they might wish within the camp, until Yezan dies. And so, with Yezan's slave soldiers not about to take orders from other slaves, it's left to Tyrion, Penny and Jorah to find the fresh water for the master. Jorah is described as an empty shell, still bearing the markings of being badly beaten, and he seems to have lost all hope, all of which elicits some sympathy in spite of his history. As the trio search for a well, Tyrion reminds us of his great potential as an advisor that we first witnessed in his time as Joffrey's Hand. He concludes that safe water comes from upriver of the latrines, and that Daenerys really should have poisoned all the wells outside her walls to prevent the siege. He also displays his deep knowledge of dragons, and we're left to consider what a great ally he would be for Danny. However, many obstacles lay in the paths of both characters before that can happen, and so a hopeless Tyrion expresses regret that he did not invade Westeros with Aegon and John Connington. With Daenerys rumored to be dead and Tyrion afraid of revealing himself to Ser Barristan Selmy, this feeling of regret is nothing if not understandable. 
Amidst the chaos that the disease has brought to the Yonkish camp, we also learn that Nurse, the overseer, has died. Although he's noted to have had cramps, a symptom of the bloody flux, it is implied that Tyrion in fact murdered him. Here's the quote. Watered wine and lemon sweet and some nice hot dogtail soup with slivers of mushroom in the broth. Drink it down, nursey. That shit water squirting from your arse needs to be replaced. The last word nurse ever said was no. The last words he ever heard were a Lannister always pays his debts. Keen-eyed readers have noted the mushroom slices in the broth and recalled those poisonous mushrooms Tyrion's been keeping in his shoe since his time in Pentos. Now, throughout, Tyrion continues to treat Penny more or less decently, despite the frustrations and dark thoughts that enter his mind. It says, instead of giving her a good hard crack across that ugly face of hers to knock the blinders from her eyes, he would find himself squeezing her shoulder or giving her a hug. He recalls how he realized the pair were to be fed to hungry lions in Dasnak's pit, a fact which Penny is still oblivious to and he continues to shelter her from. And after they find the well and fill their pails, Penny's Sansa-esque naivete is on full display as she questions the direction Tyrion leads them in next. We have to get back, she says. The master needs clean water. If we take too long, we'll be whipped. And Pretty Pig and Crunch are there. Even without a master or an overseer to punish them, the meek and pliable Penny would return to slavery. But Tyrion, of course, is leading them to the encampment of the Second Sons, where he hopes to appeal to Brown Ben Plum to shelter them. We're here to join your company, he tells a guardsman upon their arrival. When the trio are taken to Ben, Tyrion, still calling himself Yolo, ingratiates himself with the sellsword by displaying a complete knowledge of Plum's familial history, including an explanation of the man's two drops of dragon blood, and correctly predicting that Danny's dragons were fond of him, all of which greatly impresses Ben. Tyrion, aware that Ben Plum knows his true identity, and still assuming that the sellsword would sell him to Cersei, begins to explain his value as a living second son. When Casporio, Ben's second-in-command, states that the second sons are looking for fighters, not mummers, Tyrion introduces Jorah. While he hadn't been recognized at this point due to his savagely beaten face, Ben Plum recognizes his voice when he speaks. At this point, Tyrion is winning the sellswords over with his wit and allusions to Lannister gold, as we've seen him do in the past, and the chapter ends with him demanding a cup of wine while conceding that he has a lot of talking to do. The reader is left with little doubt that Tyrion has just talked himself into the relative safety of the Second Sons. And sure enough, the final Tyrion chapter in A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion 12, opens with him signing a large pile of parchments, pledging various amounts of gold to various second sons as a sort of admission fee. Of course, Tyrion came to them as a beggar, and so these are mere promises of gold, and at this point, at such a low ebb, he has nothing really to lose in the short term. 
By indebting himself to sellswords, Tyrion has at least made sure that the company will want to protect him as an asset and not send him back to the Yunkai, sell him or kill him. In recent chapters, we can't be sure if Tyrion's Lannister heritage will help or hinder him, but here we see him embracing his true self to great benefit. It must be a relief for him to cast aside Yolo and Hugo Hill at last. And after dotting the I's and crossing the T's on the pile of promissory notes, including a pledge of, quote, 100,000 golden dragons, 50 hides of fertile land, a castle, and a lordship to Brown Ben Plum, he signs his name in a large leather-bound book, a record of all the former members of the Second Sons, which includes a number of famous Westerosi, Agor Rivers, Prince Arion Brightflame, and Roderick Stark the Wandering Wolf among them. Traditionally, the company paymaster Inkpot says, members would have signed their contracts in blood rather than ink, but because blood makes piss-poor ink, Tyrion is handed a pot of red ink. But Tyrion, who claims that Lannisters love tradition, cuts his thumb with a knife and officially signs himself into the Second Sons, who, in spite of lacking the numbers and reputation of the Golden Company, have won some pretty famous victories over the years. And Tyrion asks what role he will serve in the company. Plum orders him to assist Inkpots in keeping the books, and then warns him to stay within the confines of the camp, given that he's an escaped slave who might be recognised. Inkpots orders Tyrion to find armour for himself and Penny, suggesting that she's Tyrion's woman. When Tyrion goes to Penny, she is sleeping, and we learn she's become quite withdrawn. When Tyrion brought her away from the Yunkai to the Second Sons, which might have saved their lives, her animals Crunch and Pretty Pig were left behind, a fact that has deeply upset Penny. Again, Tyrion attempts to shield her from the truth that Yunkish slave catchers had been seen asking after two dwarfs whilst carrying a dog's head on a spear. Penny is completely at odds with her surroundings, and her naivety makes her truly vulnerable amidst the surrounding danger, her innocence encouraging the reader to feel protective of her. So, when Tyrion observes that she's pale, there is cause for concern, given that the pale mare is deadly, and that the second sons would probably expel her from their camp if they suspected she carried the disease. However, Tyrion accepts that she could be tired rather than sick, and the pair set off to find armor as ordered. They meet Kem, a young sellsword who fought at the Blackwater and lost a brother on the Bridge of Ships. Kem, it turns out, is from Fleabottom. Tyrion makes a reference to Singer's stew that flies over the sellsword's head, and Kem, obviously repeating something he heard in another life, calls Tyrion Halfman a nickname from the past that we haven't heard in a while, but we'll see begins to stick within the Second Sons. Seeing Tyrion interact with his new brothers-in-arms, making japes freely without a collar around his neck and without facing the lash, gives us a sense that his arc could be on the upswing. And the armory is somewhat disappointing to Tyrion, who is used to the finely wrought custom-made plate to be found at Casterly Rock. Illustrating the hodgepodge nature of the collection, Tyrion sees this. 
a big knight, clad head to heel in company steel. His left grieve did not match his right. His gorget was spotted with rust. His vambraces, rich and ornate, inlaid with niello flowers. On his right hand was a gauntlet of lobstered steel. On his left, a fingerless mitt of rusted mail. The nipples on his muscled breastplate had a pair of iron rings through them. His great helm sported a ram's horns, one of which was broken. The big knight is revealed to be none other than Jorah Mormont, and Tyrion reflects that, quote, he looks every inch a sellsword and not at all like the half-broken thing we took from Yezan's cage. Despite the permanent brand on his face, there are signs of improvement for Jorah, as there have been for Tyrion in this chapter. Their shared goal of surviving the dangers around Marine and eventually meeting Daenerys might be some way off yet, but there has been a healthy amount of progress. And when Penny, giggling and trying on armour one moment, begins to talk of her lost brother and their animals the next, Tyrion slaps her to get her attention. He needs to instil some amount of fear in her and convey in no uncertain terms that she faces great danger and could soon find herself on the battlefield. If you want to dream, go back to sleep. When you wake up, we'll still be escaped slaves in the middle of a siege. Crunch is dead, the pig as well most like. Now find some armour and put it on, and never mind where it pinches. The mama show is over. Fight or hide or shit yourself as you like, but whatever you decide to do, you'll do it clad in steel. When Penny asserts that she'd prefer to be with Yazan, still blind to the knowledge that she was meant to be lion food at Daznak's pit, Tyrion reflects that she wants someone to take care of her, someone to tell her what to do. He feels obliged to protect Penny, whether he likes it or not, and with a palpably uncomfortable atmosphere arising every time she attempts to display physical affection, some fans actually wonder if the pair could be related as father and daughter, with Tisha being Penny's mother. Such speculation is well beyond our scope for the moment, but either way, how Tyrion treats Penny in The Winds of Winter will say much about his character going forward, as we've said. And Tyrion's A Dance with Dragons arc ends with the promise that he will flip the second sons for Daenerys. Leave that to me, he grins. It's an upbeat note to end Tyrion's dance chapters in contrast to the darkness that surrounded him through most of the book. The second sons are currently on the losing side, Mormont judges, with the Yunkai looking disorganised at best, and turning the sellsword towards Daenerys will surely bring both men closer to her, providing she returns to Marine. Sellswords are notoriously fickle, motivated by survival as much as coin, and we end A Dance with Dragons with every faith that Tyrion can flip the Second Sons for their third change of allegiance in the series. With many obstacles yet to come, including participating in the so-called Battle of Fire, a thin ray of hope shines for Tyrion Lannister as we cross over into The Winds of Winter. 
we'll be back with a look at Tyrion's Winds of Winter sample material in just a moment. But first, we'll take a short break to thank our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Radio Westeros is powered by patrons, and our sincere thanks go to Arrowdoe, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Hortense of Ashai, Blythe Spirit, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Christian, Sir Archibald Cadogan, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, Dibbles and Bits, Drew, Eliana Targaryen, Sir Sorcedelica, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady of the Frostfangs, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Liam, Boss, the Sithorian, Sally, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Scotty, Tim, W. Sword of the Evening, and Lady Diarliz of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Seasoned and blooded, stamped and sealed, a proven warrior, that's me. I've killed some men and wounded others, taken wounds myself and lived to tell of them. I've led charges, heard men scream my name, cut down bigger men and better, even had a few small tastes of glory. And wasn't that a fine rich wine for heroes, and wouldn't I like another taste? Yet with all he'd done, and all he'd seen, the prospect of another battle made his blood run cold. He had traveled across half the world by way of palanquin, poleboat, and pig, sailed in slave ships and trading galleys, mounted whores and horses, all the time telling himself that he did not care whether he lived or died, only to find that he cared quite a lot after all. So fans have been gifted with two Tyrion sample chapters for The Winds of Winter. The first was read at two conventions in 2012 and a third in 2015, while the second was read at the 2013 Worldcon before being released as part of the World of Ice and Fire app in 2014. Because the first has only been read at conventions, we only have brief fan summaries to go by. 
but paired with the second chapter, those can be revealing. Yeah, the first chapter apparently opens with Tyrion and Ben Plum playing Seves to the background of the sounds of trebuchets flinging diseased bodies over the walls of Marine. It's mentioned that Dario and the other hostages haven't been added to the trebuchet's projectiles yet, and Tyrion appears to be using the Savas game to convince Ben Plum to turn his cloak again, and everyone seems convinced that Danny will soon return on Drogon to join the fray. Ben is concerned that she'll roast him, and the idea that his defection to the Yunkish was an undercover plot to learn their plans is floated for the first time. Near the end of the chapter, a Yunkish messenger arrives with news of ships in the bay, which everyone at first takes to be the Volantine fleet arriving. This had already been raised as a point of concern for the sellswords, and likely a reason to not change sides, since everyone on the Yunkish side expects the Volantines to tip the balance in their favour. It's Jura Mormont who sees that the sails of those ships display krakens and that they're flying dragon banners. Imagine what the Westerosi in the room, Tyrion and Jura, are thinking at that moment. And the second chapter opens again with the sounds of battle. Chaos surrounds Tyrion, and he's viscerally reminded of his first battle at the Green Fork, flooded with memories of Pod and Shay, the morning fog and the sunrise, and his first victory. The second sons are preparing for battle, though Tyrion still isn't certain which side they'll be fighting for. He goes to the tent he shares with Penny to get his armor, and she asks him what's happening. His reply underlines how dire that uncertainty is. The usual things, mud and blood and heroism, killing and dying. There's one battle being fought out in the bay, another one beneath the city walls. Whichever way the Yunkish turn, they have a foe behind them. The closest fighting's a good league off still, but we'll be in it soon. Tyrion continues to recall details of his first battle, and the parallel of Penny helping him into his armour with Shay dressing him at the Green Fork doesn't go unnoticed by Tyrion himself or the reader. He continues to struggle with dark thoughts about Penny, though more often than not these thoughts are born from his memories of the things he's done in the past and his desire to keep Penny safe in the present. She's helplessly naive, and he is, in his opinion, needfully harsh in his efforts to have her recognise the gravity of the situation they're in. With enemies on all sides, there may be no safe haven for Penny once the battle reaches them, and Tyrion desperately tries to convey that to her. He also makes an effort to convey how wrong-headed the Yunkish battle plans are, Puddingface wants to use the company to throw the Iron Man back into the sea. What he should have done was send all his horse at the eunuchs full charge before they got ten feet from their gates. Send the cats at them from the left, us and the windblown from the right, rip apart their flanks from both ends. Man to man, the unsullied are no better or worse than any other spearmen. It's their discipline that makes them dangerous. But if they cannot form up into a spear wall... Penny? Admiring Tyrion's knowledge suddenly kisses him. 
This is another one of those awkward moments where Penny clearly feels something Tyrion doesn't respond to, and it says, for the first time, for longer than he cared to think, Tyrion Lannister was at a loss for words. He begins to speak about the impending battle and the death and slaughter that will come with it. She finally admits she's scared, but the language she uses reminds Tyrion all too clearly of Shay at the Green Fork. His anger begins to get the better of him. It says he was lost in a black rage, drowning in a sea of memory, when shouts from the camp outside distract both him and Penny. It was the dragons. Now, Viserion and Rhaegal had been circling the area for some time, but the white dragon seems to have suddenly realized that the projectiles hurtling through the air were meat. In a scene that reminds us clearly of Danny playing a game with her dragons in A Storm of Swords, flinging raw pork into the air for them to sear and catch on the wing, Viserion begins to seize the bodies flung by the trebuchets from midair, hitting them with a burst of flame first to roast them. When one of the flaming bodies falls into the camps instead, setting some hapless horsemen alight as well, panic seems to seize everyone in the camp. And with this pointed reminder of happier and simpler times for Daenerys and her dragons, contrasted with the violent and chaotic present, another Yunkish messenger arrives commanding the Second Sons to meet the Ironborn invaders. In the absence of Ben Plum, his men choose to toy with the messenger. While the man claims to come from the commander called Gorzak, Inkpots informs him that Ben is with the girl general. When the officer repeats his command that the second sons report to the bayside to fight the Ironborn, or the squid ships as Inkpots calls them, one of the sergeants has a moment of fun that swiftly turns to the blackest of comedy when he disingenuously declares, We're all horsemen here, same as my lord. Now, a good trained warhorse, he'll charge a wall of spears. Some will leap a fire ditch, but I never once seen any horse that could run on water. The Yunkish messenger is out of patience, but his reply is revealing of what's happening in the field. It says he screamed, The ships are landing men. They've blocked the mouth of the Skahazadan with a fire ship, and every moment you stand here talking, another hundred swords come splashing through the shallows. Assemble your men and drive them back into the sea. At once, Gorzak commands it. So the Ironborn have brought the fight ashore and the Second Sons continue to bait the Yunkish messenger by having a mocking debate amongst themselves about who exactly this Yunkish commander is, highlighting not only the ridiculous practice of rotating command the Yunkish had adopted, but their ineffective military strategy as well. Which one is Gorzak? asked Kem. Is he the rabbit? Pudding face, said Ingpots. The rabbit's not fool enough to send light horse against long ships. Having had enough mockery, the messenger departs, leaving the second sons in fits of laughter. As soon as he's away, however, Ingpots commands the men to finish readying themselves for battle. Both Tyrion and Jorah insist they are still on the wrong side, but Inkpots has no say in that, he insists. Fortunately, it's at that moment that Ben returns from his meeting with the girl general. 
Her command, he says, is for them to defend the trebuchet known as the Wicked Sister. Barristan Selmy is attacking another of the six trebuchets, he says, while the mother's men have already brought one down. The girl assumes Selmy's goal will be to take out all six of the great war machines and so she commanded they be defended. But into the meeting comes yet another Yunkish messenger, this one sent by yet another commander, known as the Drunken Conqueror. Morgaz, who has sent the previous messenger, he reports, is dead at the hands of the windblown. The drunken conqueror assuming command of the chaos is too much for Tyrion, who can't restrain a laugh and a snide comment. When the messenger notices him, he connects the small man in armor with Yezan's missing slave and starts to demand Tyrion be surrendered for punishment. Obviously unlikely to surrender his cash cow, Ben Plum refuses, but leaves it to Jorah Mormont, the other escaped slave in the tent, to skewer the messenger with his longsword. And with the messenger dead, and his news indicating the apparent crumbling of the Yunkish war effort, the time was now ripe for the outcome Tyrion had been hoping for, but had not been absolutely certain of until that moment. Following Tyrion's declaration of all hail our beloved Queen Daenerys, a sentiment to which he cynically and silently added, be she alive or be she dead, Ben Plum made a declaration of his own. We have always been the Queen's men. Rejoining the Yunkai was just a plot. And this idea was, we think, planted in Ben's mind during the previous Tyrion chapter, which we have only that brief summary of, as the pair played Savas. Ben's embrace of the idea is the culmination of Tyrion's quest to turn the Second Sons, and, as with Mord, Bronn, and the Vale's mountain clansmen in A Game of Thrones, and even, to some extent, young Griff in A Dance with Dragons, we see the power of Tyrion's words at work once again. Tyrion has survived a series of very dark experiences and has fallen into darkness himself more times than we can perhaps count in his chapters following his brief Ne Plus Ultra in A Clash of Kings when he served as Hand of the King and oversaw the defence of King's Landing during Stannis' attack at the Blackwater. It's clear from these samples that The Winds of Winter promises an arc that's on the upswing, if still haunted by darkness. We can't yet make a determination how Tyrion will be using his intelligence and powers of persuasion in the future, but whether altruistic or malevolent, we can be sure that Tyrion Lannister, whom George calls the greyest of the grey characters, will continue to use his gifts as long as he's able. Coming up next, we'll continue the conversation about Tyrion and Slaver's Bay as we bring Victarion back to the discussion and draw upon several other Miranese point of views to recap the background of the upcoming battle and speculate on what comes next in a segment we're calling Putting It All Together. But first, here's an ad from another A Song of Ice and Fire podcast. Take it away, Isle of Faces. Are you looking to get away? Tired of all the lions, wolves, and fish mucking up your beautiful Riverland community? 
then perhaps it's time to take a trip to the Isle of Faces. Here on the Isle of Faces podcast, there's much to offer the weary traveller. We've got an exciting new co-host. That's me. There's our Scraps and Scrolls reread project, currently working through the Winds of Winter sample chapters. There's our newest series, 100 Listener Questions on the Winds of Winter. And before you know it, we'll be debuting Scraps and Screens, our Game of Thrones rewatch, starting all the way back at Season 1. If you need a quiet place to unwind and enjoy all that A Song of Ice and Fire has to offer, join us today on the Isle of Faces. You can find us on Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to see you hop aboard the Isle and come and have a chat with us. See you there. The young Kai have lost this war, though it may take them some time to know it. Mirene has an army of unsullied infantry, the finest in the world. And Marine has dragons. Three of them, once the Queen returns. She will. She must. Our side consists of two score Yunkish lordlings, each with his own half-trained monkey men. Slaves on stilts, slaves in chains. They may have troops of blind men and palsy children too. I would not put it past them. By the time Tyrion Lannister arrived in Slaver's Bay to be sold in the slave market outside of Marine, the reader could feel the walls closing in on Daenerys. In spite of all her efforts to stamp out slavery in the region, the noxious trade was simply too integral to the economy and social structure of Slaver's Bay to be ordered or legislated out of existence. Danny's well-intentioned actions had destabilized the entire region and earned her more than a few powerful enemies, as her old friend Zarozoan Daxos told her. When you smash the slave trade, the blow was felt from Westeros to Ashai. Karth depends upon its slaves, so too Tolos, Nugis, Lys, Tyrosh, Volantis. The list is long, my queen. Just days before Tyrion, Penny, and Jorah arrived in Slaver's Bay, aboard the slave ship that plucked them from the Selasori Koran, and with a shadow war being waged by the Sons of the Harpy within the Wars of Marine, ships from Karth, Tolos, and Nugis forming a naval blockade and landing men ashore, the Yunkish army, accompanied by several sellsword companies outside the Wars of Marine, and a volantine fleet on its way from the west, Danny married his Darzo Lorak in an attempt to achieve peace in her city and the region. Hisdar's treaty with Yunkai did indeed promise peace, but at the cost of some of Danny's principles. Yunkai would leave Marine unmolested, but would continue to trade in slaves. And then there was the bonus for Hisdar. In exchange for his assistance in the matter of Yunkai, the fighting pits of Marine would reopen, though Danny was promised the combatants would all be adults who chose the pits freely. The Yunkish besiegers of Marine had responded to the terms of the treaty by loosening the blockade of the harbour, though not leaving it fully open by erecting slave markets beneath her very walls in a cynical rejection of her principles and sending word to the nearest Dothraki Kalasar that there was a new demand for slaves 
and by bringing their own slaves into marine as servants and entertainment as the treaty was celebrated. Tyrion and Penny sold in that market outside of marine to Yezanzo Quagaz would find themselves performing for Danny and Hisdar in Dasnak's pit where it was planned, without their knowledge, that they would face three hungry lions. Luckily for them, Danny realized what was happening and ordered it halted since it violated her requirement of choice. But mere moments later, Drogon arrived, attracted by the blood and noise, and created a fiery chaos in which the Yunkish Supreme Commander Yurkaz Soyunzak was trampled by a panicked crowd and lost his life. In an effort to control her dragon and stop the carnage, Danny jumped on Drogon's back and the pair flew away into the Dothraki Sea. If Danny's departure, and the departure of most of her Kalasar into the east to search for her, was a perfect opportunity for Hisdar to assert his control inside the city, the death of Yurkaz was the perfect excuse for the Yunkish camped outside to make more demands upon Marine. It had already been established by Zaro Zoandaxos that Danny's enemies feared her dragons and viewed them as we would view rogue nuclear weapons, a clear and present danger that posed a threat to the entire region. In an effort to convince Danny to leave with her dangerous children, and so that the slave trade upon which their economy depended could resume, the Carthine had initially proved willing to provide Danny with what she had once begged them for, and they had refused, transportation to get her and her entourage to Westeros. But when Danny refused to leave Slaver's Bay and abandon her freedmen, the Carthine joined the ranks of her enemies. At the same time, devastated over the death of the girl Hazia, Danny had chained Viserion and Rhaegal and refused to release them to be used against those enemies. She quarreled with Dario, Grolio, and the Shafepay over this, and when her refusal became plain, and it seemed she might not be the winning side after all, Brown Ben Plum took his second sons over to the Yunkish side. Now, following the carnage in Dasnak's pit and with their supreme commander dead, the Yunkish changed their conditions for withdrawal. Only the deaths of the dragons would satisfy them, and in case Danny's followers inside Marine weren't inclined to heed their demands, there was the matter of hostages. At the feast, celebrating the peace the night before the fighting pit, Three Yunkish nobles, including Yerkaz, and four sellsword captains had entered Marine. As a guarantee for their safety, Danny sent seven hostages to the Yunkish camp, three noble relatives of Hisdar, her admiral Grolio, Dario, hero of the Unsullied, and her blood rider Jogo. The first Yunkish embassy after the events of Desnek's pit returned Hisdar's relatives, along with Grolio's head as blood payment for the death of Yurkaz, and made it clear that the return of the other three hostages was dependent on the deaths of the dragons. 
And so things stood near the end of A Dance with Dragons, when Barristan and Skahaz joined forces to uncover who poisoned the locusts and was behind the resurging shadow war of the Sons of the Harpy, and Quentin Martell released the two chained dragons in his effort to take one for Dorne that cost him his life. We'll focus on the ins and outs of what's happening inside Marine in the next episode. For now, we just want to set the stage for the events outside the city walls that Tyrion and Victarion will be experiencing. Essentially outside Marine, at the end of A Dance with Dragons, we have four camps. About half a mile from the gates is a refugee camp composed of thousands of sick and starving Astapori who fled their city when the Yunkish army breached its walls and killed the latest of the Sham rulers who had taken over after Dani freed its population from slavery. Given that the bloody flux, that has been termed the Pale Mare, was raging amongst the Astapori, the Yunkish had hoped the sick refugees would infect Mirene and so intentionally pushed them north. But Danny closed the gates to them and attempted to feed and care for them outside the city walls. So when the main Yunkish camp was established south of Marine, they ended up much closer to the refugees themselves than they ever intended. Ironically, the Pale Mare has now entered their camps as well, and the casualties of the disease have yet to be numbered, but they are most likely in the thousands. To the north, on the far bank of the Skahazadan River, two legions from Nukis, about 12,000 men, are encamped to prevent supplies entering Marine from that direction, while two additional legions are doing the same job in the east. The main camp is composed of the final two Giscari legions, the Yunkish army of about 30,000 men, which is composed entirely of slaves, and more on that in a moment, a handful of other smaller groups of combatants, such as the Talosi Slingers, the Carthine Camel Corps, and the Elysian Crossbowmen, and four sellsword companies. Besides the Giscari legions, which have essentially split their strength into three camps, all of which are now dealing with the Pale Mare, the sellswords are the main force of professional soldiers in the camps. The Company of the Cat, commanded by Bloodbeard, is composed of 3,000 infantry. The Windblown, under the Tattered Prince, are 2,000 heavy horse, while the Long Lances, commanded by Gylo Regan, are 800 mounted lances. Finally, we have Brown Ben Plum's Second Sons, composed of about 500 mounted warriors. And while the Giscari legions are numerous, composed of soldiers who are outfitted in a very similar way to the Unsullied and accompanied by 100 armored elephants, the legionnaires serve only three-year terms, so their training is nowhere near as rigorous as that of the Unsullied, and they're unlikely to be an even match in spite of the visual similarities. The slave soldiers of Yunkai are mostly household slaves pressed into service, and the so-called Clanker Legion illustrates the problem with making slaves fight. These men are chained together to prevent any trying to escape. How well they'll actually fight for the masters who put them in that position remains to be seen. 
the same question could be asked about the Volantines, whom all the slavers seem to be eagerly awaiting. The Volantine navy that is set to arrive in Slavers Bay may number anywhere from 300 to 500 wardromons full of slave soldiers. Skehaz tells Baristan that Hisdar will, quote, open the city gates to the Volantines when they arrive. All those Daenerys freed will be enslaved again. Even some who were never slaves will be fitted for chains. You may end your days in a fighting pit, old man. But back in Volantis, the red priest Benero had been preaching that Volantis would burn if the Triarchs took up arms against Daenerys. And given her role as breaker of chains and the fact that 80% of the people in Volantis are slaves, perhaps the Yunkish commanders shouldn't be so confident of their untested allies. And one thing the Yunkai do seem to have going for them is their siege engines, six massive trebuchets they call the Six Sisters, which are arrayed on three sides of marine with huge chunks of stone and masonry and casks of pitch at the ready to commence the destruction of the city's ancient walls. Tyrion witnessed the 40-foot-tall machines of war on the day he was sold to Yezan. They're the main landmarks of the camps. Each has a name, and several of the companies have been set to guard them. Based on descriptions in the text, we know that Harridan and Wicked Sister are to the south of the city walls, while we can surmise Harpy's Daughter and Ghost of Astapor, defended by the Company of the Cat and the Long Lances, respectively, are to the east, as they're both noted to be attacked in the first wave that issues from Marine's gates when hostilities commence. Of uncertain location are Dragonbreaker and Mazdan's Fist, but again, based on the description and process of elimination, we can most likely place those two on the north side. Late in A Dance with Dragons, as Hisdar's piece unravels in the wake of Dasnak's pit, the Yunkai begin using the trebuchets to hurl dead bodies into Marine. The bodies carry disease into the city and are an effective scare tactic. But we see that once the battle is engaged, the Yunkish command does not change the orders and the bodies continue to fly. Flinging dead bodies is all well and good, but more traditional missiles would actually do the work of breaking the walls and causing destruction within the city. And as we see in Tyrion's second sample chapter, the dead bodies begin to attract an unwanted visitor to the airspace above the camps. At the same time, we want to point out something that Inkpots, the paymaster of the Second Sons, points out to Ben Plum when they get word in Tyrion's second Winds of Winter chapter that they've been commanded to defend one of the trebuchets. Crossbows is how you hold the wicked sister. Scorpions, mangonels, that's what's needed. You do not use mounted men to defend a fixed position. Does the girl mean for us to dismount? If so, why not use her spears or slingers? And this is a great question, he asks, considering there are noted to be companies that are specifically made up of crossbowmen, slingers and lancers. The expectation is that Barristan Selmy will be leading a mounted charge at the siege engines and it's true that cavalry is not the most effective defence against a cavalry charge at a fixed position. 
that Girl, noted to have given those orders, is one of the Yonkish commanders known as the Girl General. Following the death of Yerkaz Zoyunzak, the Yunkish nobles couldn't agree on who would lead them, and so they developed a system of rotating command that had been proving to be disastrously ineffective. Yeah, we see time and again that there's confusion about orders and who is giving them, infighting amongst the staffs of the various commanders, and general poor decision-making taking place as a result of not having a centralized command for the assembled besiegers. The poor use and defense of the trebuchets is only the beginning, as things begin to happen very quickly at the end of the Tyrian and Victorian sample chapters, and much of it seems to be tilting the board in the defenders' favor. We do not want to be fighting for the slavers when Daenerys returns, and she will make no mistake. Strike now and strike hard, and the Queen will not forget it. Find her hostages and free them, and I will swear on the honour of my house and home that this was Brown Ben's plan from the beginning. Besides the apparent incompetence of the Yunkish High Command, the single factor working in the defender's favor is the fickleness of sellswords. We mentioned there are four sellsword companies in the field for the Yunkish Alliance at the beginning of the hostilities, and we've already mentioned that by the end of the Second Tyrian chapter, we know that Gylo Regan's long lances have been smashed by Marceline's mother's men as they guarded the trebuchet known as the Ghost of Astapor, while Gorzak Zoeras, the Yunkish commander known as Pudding Face, has been slain by the Windblown. Yeah, unbeknown to anyone outside the walls, the Tattered Prince and the Windblown have been recruited by Barristan Selmy to rescue Danny's hostages. Since they're last noted to be in the vicinity of the Haradan, one of the two trebuchets closest to the main Yunkish camp south of Mirin's walls, we can perhaps assume that they mean to be a part of the attack on that position. Of note, one of the hostages they were meant to save is none other than Dario Naharis, captain of the Stormcrows, whose acting captain, the widower, has been commanded by Sir Baristan to lead the Stormcrows in taking down the Haridan. So we think it's very possible that Dario will reunite with his men for this effort. It's harder to say what the other two hostages will do once freed. For instance, Hero of the Unsullied, unlike the company that will free him, the other sellswords in his vicinity, and Danny's blood rider Jogo, who was also held hostage, is not accustomed to fighting on horseback. If he's able to fight, he may have to do so on foot with whatever infantry unit he can join up with, be it his own Unsullied in the east or the Ironborn who are landing ashore to the west of the camps. There's always the possibility that some of these prisoners have been mistreated and are unable to join in the battle, or that they've been given orders to seek out Barristan to be debriefed before doing so. The defeat of the Long Lances and the defection of the Windblown to Mirin's cause leaves two sellsword companies in the field for the Yunkai, Bloodbeard's Company of the Cat and Brownben Plum's Second Sons. 
However, the final pages of Tyrion's Winds of Winter sample material leave us in no doubt that Brown Ben means to turn his cloak yet again. With Gorzak dead, command falls to Morgazo Zerzin, known amongst the Sellswords as the Drunken Conqueror. It is Morgar's messenger who brings the news of Gorzak's death and the defection of the Windblown, along with new orders for the Second Sons to ride to the aid of Bloodbeard and the two Giscari legions defending the Harpy's daughter from an attack by the Unsullied and the Mother's Men. Now these orders countered the girl general's previous order to Ben to defend the Wicked Sister, and Ben Plum seems disinclined to follow them. As we mentioned earlier, when the messenger notices Tyrion and demands he be returned to Yezan's heirs, Jorah kills him without a second thought, and Ben announces the plan for the second sons to turn for Daenerys. Ben Plum entered the story as a sellsword whose company first opposed Daenerys, but who grew to be one of her most trusted advisors after turning his cloak to her cause. In Essos, Companies of sellswords are common, often hired by city-states for defence or to fight their wars for them, and are usually comprised of soldiers from various origins. Men from Westeros have been known to join or even found such companies. Aegor Bittersteel Rivers, Prince Arian Targaryen, Roderick the Wandering Wolf Stark and Oberyn Martell all served in the sellsword companies at one time or another. The slave armies in Marine may have little choice in things, but sellswords fight for anyone who can pay their price. As such, sellswords do have one glaring weakness. Loyalty. As Kevin Lannister said, A man who fights for coin is loyal only to his purse. Brown Ben Plum claims to be the veteran of a hundred battles and a former bodyguard for the Paul family of Marine, whom he ran from when the going got tough. A storm of swords found the second sons fighting for Yunkai until their then-leader Miro, also known as the Titan's Bastard, fled after Dario Naharis brought the Stormcrows over to Daenerys. Ben Plum became the new leader of the Second Sons and followed suit in turning his cloak, sitting in Danny's councils until it became apparent that she would not use her overwhelming advantage, the dragons, against her foes. Ben's philosophy seems to be that a good sellsword will always try to be on the winning side. As he tells Danny, there are old sellswords and there are bold sellswords, but there are no old, bold sellswords. And so Ben is cautious and self-serving. But he's also nobody's fool, and having him on your side is in fact preferable to the alternative. He's a quote, Essosi mongrel, who claims to be part Bravosi, part Summer Islander, part Ebenese, part Cohoric, part Dorthraki, part Dornish, and part Westerosi. The last part is the source of the claim that he has a drop of dragon blood as well. That drop, or two as Tyrion suggests, most likely comes via Lord Viserys Plum, the son of Princess Elena Targaryen. The story goes that during the reign of the fourth Aegon, his cousin Elena married the elderly Lord Ossifer Plum at the king's request. Although Lord Ossifer died on their wedding night, reportedly after beholding his young wife's naked beauty, the princess conceived a child who was born sometime afterwards. 
the timing of the younger Plum's birth led to the legendary tale of Ossifer Plum's six-foot-long member, as clearly many people felt that the babe was born too late to have been conceived during that brief wedding night encounter. The conclusion, it seems, is that Viserys was in fact a cuckoo in Ossifer's nest, having been planted there by none other than King Aegon IV. Yeah, so Ben could be a double Targaryen on that branch of his tree in exactly the same way the Blackfires were. And in fact, it's the close connection of his plum ancestor to Daemon Blackfire, half-brothers who are also first cousins, that lends weight to the idea that Ben Plum hasn't finished turning his cloak yet. In his Winds of Winter sample chapter, Tyrion describes Ben coming back into the Second Son's camp. Brown Ben Plum wore plate and mail over boiled leather. The silk cloak flowing from his shoulders was his only concession to vanity. It rippled when he moved, the colour changing from pale violet to deep purple. It's interesting to consider that description of the cloak changing from pale violet to deep purple as possible foreshadowing of a turned cloak in light of the fact that while Daenerys's eyes are described on numerous occasions as violet, young Griff's eyes are described as dark purple. And when one considers the thematic significance of an offshoot of House Plum supporting a possible offshoot of House Blackfire, things get even more interesting. So, something to watch out for there, should Aegon look to be succeeding in his bid to seize the Iron Throne, and remembering that for Ben, being on the winning side is everything. To quote another of his colourful sayings, Silver's sweet, and gold's our mother, but once you're dead, they're worth less than that last shit you take as you lie dying. But for now, it seems, Ben Plum has abandoned his Yunkish employers and is about to join the fray on the side of Daenerys, which suits his new brothers-in-arms, Tyrion and Jorah Mormont, just fine. This leaves just Bloodbeard's Company of the Cat on the Yunkish side for sellswords, and with the Ironborn landing and joining the battle on foot, and Barristan taking the Miranese defenders on the offense to take out the catapults, things are looking pretty grim for the Yunkish army. And the Ironborn aren't just landing men ashore. The Yunkish messenger, who had been laughed out of the Second Son's camp, mentioned a fire ship, which will be the use to which Victarion is putting some of the lowlier vessels he's captured. In a move that is somewhat akin to Tyrion's strategy at the Blackwater, Victarion used the ships under the command of Wolf Wanier, a quote, lubbery assortment of cogs, great cogs, carracks, and trading galleys salted here and there with fishing boats, as bait for the slavers in the bay, instructing them, traders and fishers, that's all you are, any man can see that, let them get close as they like, but keep your men hidden below decks until you are ready, then close and board them. Free the slaves, and feed the slavers to the sea, but take the ships. We will have need of every hull to carry us back home. So the goal of those ships would be to break through the blockade at the entrance of Slaver's Bay, 
What likely happened next is Victarion arrived with his warships to run the gap, while leaving a blockade of their own behind, the fireship which would prevent any of the slaver ships escaping, remembering that Victarion had cited the need to capture as many large ships as possible to transport Danny, her dragons, and her army back to Westeros. And this will be what was happening when Tyrion reports hearing warships out in the bay. Tyrion could not see them from here, but he could hear the sounds, the crash of hull against hull as ships slammed together, the deep-throated warhorns of the Ironborn, and the queer high whistles of Karth, the splintering of oars, the shouts and battle cries, the crash of axe on armor, sword on shield, all mingled with the shrieks of wounded men. Many of the ships were still far out in the bay, so the sounds they made seemed faint and far away but he knew them all the same, the sounds of slaughter. With the arrival of more Westerosi on the scene, another thing worth considering outside of the battle is the many possible reunions and intersections that could be taking place amongst our cast of characters. Tyrion and Jorah obviously will know Makoro, while Jorah will certainly be aware of Victarion, having fought for Robert in the Greyjoy Rebellion a decade earlier. Victarion may even know that Jorah Mormont was first through the breach when Pike was sacked by the Royal Army. Tyrion and Victarion may not know each other, but Tyrion's thoughts make clear that there's no love lost between Lannisters and Greyjoys. Westermen knew what savagery the Ironborn were capable of. The reunion of Tyrion and Jorah with Makoro may prove to be very interesting. The three had set out from Volantis together aboard Salisori Koran. In Volantis, Tyrion and Jorah had observed the preaching of the Red Priest Benero, whom Tyrion first heard of in Saloris with Halvin Halfmaester. It was Cavo, the customs officer of that city, who first mentioned Bonero. In Volantis, thousands of slaves and freedmen crowd the temple plaza every night to hear Bonero shriek of bleeding stars and a sword of fire that will cleanse the world. He has been preaching that Volantis will surely burn if the Triarchs take up arms against the Silver Queen. While the population of Volantis seems to be largely made of slaves, its decision-makers are obviously not, being invested in both the slave trade and in keeping their own slaves tractable and obedient. Daenerys threatened all of that, and even the lowliest citizen has reason to hate her, as Carvo explained further. This arrogant child has taken it upon herself to smash the slave trade, but that traffic was never confined to Slaver's Bay. It was part of the sea of trade that spanned the world, and the Dragon Queen has clouded the water. Behind the Black Wall, lords of ancient blood sleep poorly, listening as their kitchen slaves sharpen their long knives. Slaves grow our food, clean our streets, teach our young. They guard our walls, row our galleys, fight our battles. And now when they look east, they see this young queen shining from afar, this breaker of chains. The old blood cannot suffer that. 
poor man hate her too. Even the vilest beggar stands higher than a slave. This dragon queen would rob him of that consolation. Once in Volantis, though by that time he was in Jorah Mormon's power and being presented as a slave in chains himself, Tyrion saw the truth of much of what Cavo had said. And when Jorah approached the old woman known as the Widow of the Waterfront for help in finding passage to Marine, much to Tyrion's shock, the widow finally agreed to help them by promising them a place aboard the trading vessel Salisori Koran, bound for Karth. When Jorah protested that was not their destination, she replied, She will never reach Karth. Banero has seen it in his fires. She also told Tyrion, Should you reach your queen, give her a message from the slaves of old Volantis. Tell her we are waiting. Tell her to come soon. So the widow, a woman who apparently wields enormous power in the Volantine underworld, who had seen to Makoro being aboard and treated as the, quote, true master of Selasori Koran, is not only a disciple of Benero, but is clearly involved in a brewing slave revolt in that city. This interaction is extremely revealing of the prospects for the Volantine navy that Victarion observed, and the Yunkai are so eagerly awaiting, actually fighting for the slavers, given that it is comprised of slaves. Yeah, given the preachings of Bonero and the devotion of the slaves of Volantis to the Red God, as we indicated earlier, it does not seem at all likely that the Volantine slave soldiers will be anywhere near as pliable and passive as the Yunkish Clanker Legions or the company known as the Herons who fight on stilts, for instance. So Makoro arriving in Slaver's Bay ahead of the Volantine Navy, as he now seems set to do with Victarion Greyjoy's help, seems like it might have been part of the plan all along, to have a Red Priest in place at Marine who could preach the word of Benero and rouse the slave soldiers on those Wardramons to Daenerys' side. And obviously, as we said earlier, Makoro has seen things and plans things far beyond what he's shared with his new best bud, Victarion. Speaking of which, in their brief time together aboard Selasori Koran, Tyrion took the opportunity to question Makoro about what he saw in his flames. Though Tyrion did not trust the Red Priest in the slightest, the answer that he got is very interesting and speaks to the possibilities for Tyrion's upcoming role in Danny's arc. Dragons, dragons old and young, true and false, bright and dark, and you, a small man with a big shadow, snarling in the midst of all. So it's clear that Tyrion is going to loom large in the upcoming conflict between the story's metaphorical dragons, which may also come to mean a conflict between the actual dragons should Aegon come to possess one, as some speculate. The actual hidden meaning behind Makoro's words just who the old, young, true, false, etc. dragons are, and whether his inclusion of Tyrion in that roster indicates that Tyrion is also a dragon of sorts, has yet to be revealed. 
Yeah, lots of fans think these metaphorical dragons may be Blood Raven, Danny herself, Aegon, perhaps even Illyrio if he's a secret Blackfire, the known and not so known dragons who are impacting the direction of the story, both directly and behind the scenes. And to those who speculate that Tyrion is the secret byblow of Aerys II, his inclusion in that vision feels extremely significant. But Makaro also mentions that there are many people seeking Daenerys besides themselves. When Tyrion asks who they are and if they've been seen in the flames, Makaro replies, Only their shadows, one most of all, a tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms, sailing on a sea of blood. So this seems to be clearly Euron, whose emissary Victarion is, even now, sailing into Slaver's Bay with Makoro aboard his ship. Euron sent something else besides Victarion and the Iron Fleet, however. Aboard Victarion's ship is the Dragonhorn that we saw used at the King's Moot at Old Wick. Blown three times to unsettle the Ironborn captains and display Euron's raw power and promises of gold and plunder, the slave who sounded it had died, his lungs charred and blackened, and the horn was then consigned to Victarion, apparently to be used to bring Danny's dragons to heel. And as we discussed earlier, it was Makoro who deciphered the Valyrian glyphs engraved upon the horn for Victarion. I am Dragonbinder, no mortal man shall sound me and live. Blood for fire, fire for blood. Though Victarion thinks, not for the first time, how Euron's gifts are always poisoned, his question to Makoro, The crow's eye swore this horn would bind dragons to my will, but how will that serve me if the price is death? brings an answer Euron may not have expected his younger brother to learn. Your brother did not sound the horn himself, nor must you. Who blows the hell horn matters not. The dragons will come to the horn's master. You must claim the horn with blood. How exactly that is to be done remains to be seen, but Euron's plans may not have foreseen Victarion having, as he thinks, a wizard of his own to advise him. Presumably, Euron has taken some steps to claim the horn for himself, but Victarion is taking steps of his own, laying a plan to have three men sound the horn for him at the appointed time. If he fails to claim the horn first, though, Will he, in fact, end up binding a dragon to Euron, the presumed master of the horn? Does binding with blood mean that Victarion must first kill the horn's previous master, a well-worn fantasy trope for dark magical weapons? Or will smearing his own blood upon the horn, as we see him do in the sample chapter, be enough? If it's the latter, as Victarion seems to think, Euron was a fool to give me this. It is a precious thing and powerful. With this I'll win the sea stone chair and then the iron throne. With this I'll win the world. Then perhaps we might learn the truth of what glory awaits him, according to Makoro. However, if it is in fact the former, then Victarion and Euron are on the wrong sides of the world. And with Victarion apparently poised to have the horn blown in the near future, it might turn out that we get to see what happens when a dragon is bound to a master who is thousands of leagues away. 
And amidst all the chaos Victarion is bringing to Slaver's Bay and the character intersections between him and Makoro and others already at Marine, there are a number of intersections between characters who are inside the walls of the city and those who are in the camps that we look forward to seeing. Both Tyrion and Jorah are known to Barristan, who probably won't be delighted to see either one of them. Ditto Victarion, whom Barristan may not know personally, but they'll certainly be known to each other from Balon's first rebellion, where Barristan Selmy led the attack on Old Wick. These Westerosi will be very uneasy allies, in spite of their common goal of helping Daenerys. And speaking of Daenerys, imagine the three alpha males who all want her for various reasons in the same space, Jorah, Victarion, and the recently freed Dario Naharis. This doesn't seem like an intersection that's going to go very well at all, especially Victarion and Dario, who seem to be cut from very similar pieces of cloth. And finally, the one thing that all of these men seem to expect will happen at any moment, except for perhaps Makoro, that Danny will appear in the sky above riding Drogon to save the day, is highly unlikely to occur. Even as the battle outside of Marine unfolds, Danny is still lost in the Dothraki Sea and is more likely to be heading east than west in the short term. So, the opening chapters of The Winds of Winter promise to be action-packed, with the battle on the ice, the battle in the Redwine Straits, the battle of Storm's End, and last but not least, the battle of fire here in Slaver's Bay. We anticipate an explosive beginning to the upcoming novel. George has layered the setup in Slaver's Bay to give us a complex setting with regards to the social and political backgrounds of all parties. As we've said, Slaver's Bay is a place for important intersections, dating back to George's Miranese knot and carrying forward to the arrival of Tyrion, Victarion, and the wide cast of secondary characters who might soon be meeting one another. Altogether, Slaver's Bay promises to be an intriguing setting in the Winds of Winter, with all arcs bound by a great battle which will provide the centerpiece of all the related chapters. And that concludes our look at what's happening in Slaver's Bay. In the next installment, we'll head inside the walls of Marine to catch up with Sir Barristan and everything that's been happening there since Daenerys flew away with Drogon. Thanks so much for joining us today for this look at the action all around Slaver's Bay. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be back soon with another installment where we'll look at what's going on inside the walls of Marine. But now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks so much to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us this complex story. And thanks to Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And as usual, we end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Our heartfelt thanks go to AJ, Aegon the Sixth, Alex, Ali, Oakenfist, Nessie the Questing Beast, Arion, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Christine, Maddie and Jessica, Clay, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Crimson Kate, Dag Blah Blah, Dan S, Dimitri B, Dennis, Eric, Esme, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Ingvild, 
Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Brendan Beefish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, writer of the Ice Dragon Scenarion, The White Storm, Julie Beth Tarth, Judson, Catherine, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Brash Candy, Kevin, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemmy B, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Maria, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, and Matt L. And thanks as well to Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Melinda, Maester Mary, Michael M, Mitchell, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, and Paul H, Richard, Sam, Scott Greenseer, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift, Scott, Sherry, Sheila, Cern, Spentrails, That Shiny Bastard, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helmuth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Virginie, Quar and Halfhand, Woodside for Life, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. <laughs>